Father, we come to this place in our service where we actually very much try to focus our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to hear from your word, to understand it. Uh, Would you give us that understanding now as we read your word and prepare to dive in? Uh, This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to dive in. Verse 14. This is the word of God. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What tribe do the priests come from in the nation of Israel? Levi, not the tribe of Judah. What tribe did Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah. (laughs) Okay. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak. It was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. The point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. So we're continuing on in this argument that we find in the book of Hebrews, and it's an argument about better, about superior. Uh, The author of Hebrews has been writing to this group of people who we have noted time and time again are in a very difficult, very hard place. They're being persecuted just for their faith. And the writer says to them, you know, you do not want to uh, lose hold of this high priest that you have, this high priest Jesus. You want to hold tightly to him. Why? Because he is better. He is superior. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses and the prophets. He is superior to the kings. He is superior to the Levitical priests. He is better. He brings us a better covenant. Now, uh, the book of Hebrews, because of the nature of the suffering that is happening in the lives of the people, the readers that are receiving this letter, the nature of Hebrews is 
that of a kind of a pastoral letter, a, a letter counseling and encouraging and challenging them to faithfulness. This week we come to the place where this counselor, the writer of this book says, there is nothing more practical, nothing more helpful than for you to know that Jesus is your great high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. This is what he's telling him. Uh, and this is said not as a piece of abstract theology, but it's actually given as a piece of very, very, very practical advice meant to encourage the readers right in the midst of their hardships. Now, some background here would be helpful. Understand that in this period of time, we're talking first century AD, basically everyone is trying to draw near to the gods. If you're a Jew, draw near to God, singular, Jehovah God. And in that day, you did that through priests and temples and sacrifices and religious rituals and so now, we don't have too many temples in our cities um, where priests are praying to the gods and where priests are offering sacrifices and where priests are administering laws and uh, working in accord with religious ritual. But back then they did. There really was no religion without priests, no religion without priestesses doing certain kinds of things. And pretty much everyone practiced some form of religion. If not uh, heartfelt, nevertheless, they went through the motions. And what this meant was that everybody went to a temple. Everyone appealed to priests, uh, certainly weekly, uh, if not daily, certainly monthly, if not weekly. This is just the way life worked. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing something out that's very important. Namely, that all of this work of priests, and of course, in particular, he has in view the work of Jewish priests, Levitical priests, the work of the priests that would take place at the temple and also in the synagogue, but chiefly at the temple. And what he's pointing out is that the work of the priests, all their rituals, all their prayers, all their sacrifices, they just never end because their job is never finished, never and the writer of Hebrews makes this very shocking, if you had been reading it back then, very shocking, but also very significant observation, namely that all this ceaseless priestly activity, again, he's thinking primarily about Jewish priestly activity, all this stuff, he says, is useless and weak. Useless and weak. He says, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope, a superior hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. A better hope, that's a theme. There's a word in verse 25 too that becomes very helpful to us, important for us to understand actually. It says in verse 25, therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives and here's the word to intercede to intercede for them that word intercede is an interesting word interceding was something of course that priests did for people that was part of the work that they did but this word has an additional nuance that's uh, kind of interesting almost uh, employs yet another metaphor here the word is actually a legal word. Intercession was something that 
uh, not just a priest would do, but a lawyer or an advocate would do for someone who's been accused of a crime, someone who's on trial. The lawyer would intercede for the accused before the judge or before the magistrate. Understanding the nuance of this word kind of helps us better understand the argument that the writer of Hebrews is giving us. You see, a priest in that culture functioned very much like a lawyer for the people that he or she was representing to any particular God. The priest would advocate or intercede for you so that the God you were petitioning would hear your prayers, would grant your requests, would forgive your transgressions, would destroy your enemies, which is often what the prayers of that day were about, or would water your crops, whatever it happened to be. For you to have any confidence before the God you petitioned, you needed to know what that God thought of you, if that God liked you you, if that God appreciated and received your sacrifices. In other words, that God's opinion of you mattered. Frankly, it mattered a lot, especially, of course, if you were a Jew and you were trying to relate to Jehovah God, the God of Israel. Uh, One thing any good Jew knew very, very clearly, very well uh, because of the Torah, because of the sacrificial system, because of what the priests and the prophets taught and did constantly was that sin, personal sin, my sin, your sin, but also the sin of the nation is a big deal. It's a big problem. And every day a Jew knew that in Jerusalem, sacrifice for sins was being made. Hundreds, if not thousands of times a day on the altar, sacrifice was being made to take care of the problem of sin, to pay for sin, so that my sin and the sins of the nation could be properly dealt with. And a Jew understood that the verdict or the judgment of God regarding him or her was guilty. Guilty, but sacrifice would absolve him or her of their sin, would atone for their sin. This is what they understood. This is what was going on at the temple. Now to us today, this all seems quite antiquated, maybe even a little silly, maybe primitive, maybe barbaric to our enlightened, modern, Western way of thinking. But is it? Before we get too smug, I would suggest that that pretty much everybody, everywhere, living in every time, goes through life constantly looking for ways to be absolved, to absolve themselves from guilt, from that nagging sense that something is wrong with me. Looking for ways to get a verdict, a verdict we want, a verdict that we need, looking for a judgment, if you will, in our favor, regardless whether we even believe in a God. I think we live this way. It's a lot of what drives us. We do this in big and small ways all day long. We judge ourselves on how we look or how we perform or uh, how acceptable we are, how successful we are, how liked we are, how good or how bad we think we may have been behaving. But the funny thing is the judgments that we make about ourselves are never very satisfying, are they? In other words, I'm never really satisfied once and for all with my own opinion of myself at any given moment. I'm going to believe that you're not either. I mean, I may think I did well in today's message. What about next week? Next week is coming. I may think I look good today. What about tomorrow? I may do well on this test that I took, but uh, what about the test that's coming up next week? 
Uh, I may have uh, been very, very kind in this moment to this person. I may have been servant-hearted, but what about the next person I have to deal with? You see, all of my judgments about me are only momentary judgments. They're only temporary judgments. They are also always biased judgments, I would add. What I really want what I crave, what I, what I really need is a definitive outside opinion or verdict, if you will, about me. Now, some people pretend that all they care about is satisfying themselves. You know, their own opinion is all that matters to them. Uh, they are their own person. They just do whatever it is that makes them happy without worrying about what you might think about it. But the truth is, that's just pretending, folks. That's bravado. Because inside, we are all insecure and uncertain at times. Inside, we all really would like to know. Inside, we all long for a judgment, for a verdict. And you have to ask, why? Why are we like that? Why, why are we put together that, that this is kind of how we operate? And I would suggest that it is a throwback to creation itself. The fact that we have a maker, the Bible makes that claim, of course. We didn't just evolve from lower life forms. We have a maker, someone who created men and women in his image. And what the Bible tells us, we were actually made and created to serve our maker, to glorify our maker, to honor our maker in how we live and what we do or don't do. And what we want and what we need more than anything, I think, is his acceptance and his approval. But because of sin in us and because of the sin that's in our world, we now live in a world where a good many people, maybe the majority, deny even the existence of a God. Certainly deny our connection to him. At the very least, deny our moral obligation under him. We now look everywhere but to God for acceptance and for approval. And we know deep down that we are not who we should be, not even who we appear to be or pretend to be. We know to a large extent that we are broken. Most people know this about themselves. We know that we are fallen. They might not use that word. We know that we are sinful. They might not use that word. But we know we are not okay. (laughs) Not really. Not deep down. Because of this, you get this um, demonstrated, illustrated again and again and again and again in the arts. There's a playwright, Arthur Miller, a very famous American playwright, He wrote a play called After the Fall, using that language of Genesis. It was his most unpopular play, by the way. Uh, It was actually very autobiographical. Remember Arthur Miller was married to Marilyn Monroe. You might might remember that, some of you that are 70 and above. (laughs) In this play, the main character is a guy named Quentin. Quentin is a middle-aged New York lawyer, and he's been married and divorced twice. Now he's in love again, but he's very, very insecure, very unsure of himself with regards to this new relationship. And so in the play, it's kind of a running, mental, personal examination of his past. He's looking back at his 
previous two marriages and why they failed and what went wrong. He's looking at back at past friendships and relationships and betrayals and things that happened that he did or that others did to him. He's looking back at relationships with clients, he being the lawyer, they as client. And he goes through this extensive self-examination and he realizes something very sadly profound. This is what his character says, Quentin, uh, as he's mulling all of this over and talking out loud and expressing his thoughts. He says, for years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are. And then later on, what a good lover you are. And later you prove what a good father and husband you are. Finally, you prove how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, I always made an assumption that one moved on some kind of upward path towards some elevation where, I don't know what, I could be justified or, or condemned, a verdict at any rate. I think my disaster began when I looked up one day and I realized the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with myself, this pointless, pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. <laughs> Arthur Miller puts his finger on the problem of modern man. Modern man is alone. He has no God. He has no maker. He has no judge and therefore he has no purpose. He has no point. You see, if there is no judge behind the bench, no one outside yourself to pronounce you once and for all innocent or guilty, good or evil, right or wrong, then you are your own judge. And existentially that puts you in an endless argument with yourself and therefore no real verdict is ever coming, just despair. The cross-examination will never end. The trial will never stop. You will never, ever have a final verdict about you. Your life will be an endless effort or argument to prove something. An endless effort or argument to accomplish more. An endless effort or argument to justify yourself to yourself. Despair. The book of Romans in Romans chapter one says that whether you admit with your mind or not that God exists, your heart knows that he does. That's the claim of the Bible. Your heart knows that he does and your heart feels this, this deep connection to the one who made you, even if you deny it. In fact, you even know that you are accountable to him despite how you might deny it or run from it or suppress it. The Apostle Paul uses these words. These are familiar to most of you. <coughs> Excuse me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's the Bible's claim about you and me. We suppress the truth about God with our wickedness. 
Since what may be known about God, it says, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The point here, friends, is that creation itself is the unassailable, absolutely convincing argument for the proof of God. You look out there, you see the beauty in the trees, and there's something in you that knows someone made that. Duh. But what do we do with this truth? We suppress it with our unrighteousness. We refuse to believe it. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, which is certainly what we do, we are far too wise to believe something so stupid as a God who made all things and who made us to whom we're accountable. That's the stupidest thing, we think. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, we've exchanged birds and animals and reptiles to things like iPhones and rockets and things that will get us to the moon. We think therein lies our salvation. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The Bible's claim is that the knowledge of God is literally hardwired into every human being. And since there is a God, our lives really are on trial. That's what the Bible claims. Your life, my life, Arthur Miller's life, our lives are, in fact, on trial. And we can deny it if we like. You can put yourself on the judges, behind the judge's bench, if you like, instead of God. Like Arthur Miller, you can live in despair, believing that no one is behind the bench and no one is judging. But even then, you can't stop the trial from going on in your own head. And so underneath all our efforts to get verdicts from ourselves or from people out there, verdicts about who we are and how we're doing and are we acceptable, underneath all of that, in reality, the Bible would say we're looking for something deeper. We're, we're looking for a word of approval, a word of acceptance, a final verdict from our maker, from Almighty God. Because, of course, uh, he really is the judge before whom we stand, before whom we will one day make our defense, the Bible claims. And the real question is, when you have to make that defense, are you going into that courtroom alone? That's the burning question. Once in a while, you'll see a TV show or you'll see a movie. It's got lawyers in it and it's got criminals and it's got judges and so. And, and in the show, some defendant in court decides to defend him or herself and somehow they win. You know, they win their battle in court by defending themselves. But friends, any real attorney knows that never happens. Never. That just never happens. That is an absolute disaster when somebody decides to be their own advocate. Never, ever works. And here's the point uh, of this passage in the book, of, the book of Hebrews is that you don't have to go into the most important courtroom alone. The only people who go into that courtroom alone, the only people are religious people. Because religious people think they actually can't argue for themselves. Religious people think, well, you know, 
I'm better than that person. I, I think I'm good enough. You know, I, I've lived a good life, especially compared to some. I, I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm a good husband. I'm a good Christian. But friends, the writer of Hebrews is telling us there is a better way to draw near to God. And that way, arguing for yourself isn't it. In fact, this is the basic premise of the gospel. It's the basic premise of Christianity, and it's what makes Christianity so dramatically different than any other religion or faith. Exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the advocate or the priest that you need. So back to our passage. The writer of Hebrews says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. When you go to court, the one who intercedes for you is frankly everything. Uh, in court, it's your advocate's performance, not yours, not your own, that will make you or break you. Uh, if your advocate is eloquent and convincing and brilliant, uh, then in the courtroom, you will look eloquent and convincing and, and brilliant. If your advocate wins, you win. If your advocate loses, you lose. You are, so to speak, in your advocate. And right here, we get a very clear glimpse into what it means to actually be a Christian. To be a Christian is not to have Jesus as your example, as good an example as he is, but that's not being a Christian. It's not saying, hey, well, I, I pray to Jesus. I ask Jesus for help. I, I try to live the way Jesus would want me to live. I, I try to love my neighbor as myself. I go to church. I read my Bible. Great, great, great. All good. But you don't do any of those things to make you a Christian. Because you see, when you say those things, when you advocate those kinds of things on your behalf, what you're trying to do is be your own advocate. And that will be a disaster, friends. You see, here's what it actually means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be in him. That language, in him, in Jesus. Paul uses this over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Some 91 times, this language of being in Christ. And it means that Jesus is the one who represents you in the ultimate trial before the ultimate bench at the ultimate temple before the only court that really counts. And that is the court of the great white throne judgment, the court of heaven. Let me try and explain how this works. It's important we get this. First, let me show you how it doesn't work. It doesn't work this way. Jesus doesn't come into the courtroom, so to speak, representing me and say, oh, Father, you know, Dwayne has made all these promises to change and change and change. And here he is sinning again. But Father, I, give him a break. Give him another chance. I know he's trying, Father, so I, I ask for mercy for Dwayne. And then the Father says, oh, all right, <laughs> okay. That's not what Jesus does for us in the courtroom of heaven. That's not what Jesus does as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If the intercessory, intercessory work of Jesus is essentially pleading with God, even, even insinuating that maybe the criminal, me, will do better, if Jesus is using his influence to get mercy out of the Father, 
you know, how long will that last? <coughs> because why wouldn't one day the father just say, enough is enough for crying out loud, he's a minister now. <laughs> Look at him. I've had it. Understand that that's not how Jesus advocates or intercedes for us. Not at all. You see, Jesus isn't interested in manipulating the judge or massaging the facts at all. Jesus, being the great high priest, being the advocate that he is, actually has built an airtight, open and closed case. According to Hebrews, Jesus is not in the courtroom asking for mercy. The fact is, if you are asking for mercy, you have already lost the case. You know what Jesus is doing? Look at verse 27. It says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Rather, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so Jesus is in the courtroom saying, Father, you demand justice and that is right. You are fair. You are good. You are a just God. And my friend Dwayne here is guilty. He's guilty as he can be. But Father, I have made payment for his sin and his guilt. My body was broken. My Blood was poured out for the remission of his sins. And what is more, I have given him my righteousness. And so, Father, I'm not asking for mercy. I am absolutely demanding justice. And your very justice demands that you embrace Dwayne, forgive Dwayne, accept Dwayne, for he is in me. And friends, that's an airtight case. Do you see the difference between that and Arthur, what Arthur Miller was describing? Always advocating for yourself. I'm a good person, or I can do better, or I'm a faithful husband, or I try my best, always looking for an acceptable verdict. What, what is that compared to this? Do you see why the Apostle John says, and we quote this verse all the time uh, when we're confessing our sins together in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. It says he is faithful and just. The intercessory work of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jesus, the substitutionary work of Jesus who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died has changed things forever. So now the just punishment of our sins and the moral perfection of God's law demands all of these things, the demands are fully met for us in Jesus. To be in Jesus means we can have that kind of confidence. Our relationship is secure because Jesus secured it and maintains it. Jesus gives us the verdict that we need. Practically speaking, what this means is the Heavenly Father sees us through the lens of Jesus. And that has all kinds of implications. For one, we're actually beautiful to the Heavenly Father. When He looks at you, you're beautiful to Him, you're not ugly. You are his beloved. He absolutely delights in you because you are in Jesus. 
Salvation uh, is both pardon for sin, yes, on the one hand, but it's also full acceptance in Jesus' family. It's pardon for sin and also complete delight. And if you get this, if you embrace Jesus as your high priest and your advocate, the way the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, then understand you get a completely new identity, which is what you and I need. Because this identity isn't good enough. I need a new identity. So do you. So now when you start to argue your case in court, now when you seek approval, uh, when you're looking for approval from others to get a verdict from them that you want, sometimes those verdicts are good. People like us. Sometimes they're bad. People don't. You should stop and you should remember you already have the verdict. Jesus Christ is your high priest forever. He is your sacrifice. He is your righteousness. He is your brother. He is your friend. All of these words Jesus uses to describe himself in relation to you. You have an entirely new identity rooted and grounded in him. So not just your sin is paid for, but your guilt is gone. Your past mistakes, real as they are, they have implications to be sure, but they no longer define you. You are a new creature created in Christ. How do you think Paul felt about this news? Remember, Paul was the guy going after people who follow Jesus. He wanted to lock them up and put them to death. I bet he tried and tried and tried to erase those memories, but couldn't. How do you think Paul felt about realizing that in Jesus, he was a new creature? He wrote these words, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. I'll tell you, knowing this, friends, helps us to undermine, helps to undermine our disappointments and our discouragements. That's why the writer of Hebrews is saying these things to his recipients, to the ones receiving this letter. They needed encouragement. They needed a verdict. Now, it doesn't abolish our dis disappointments or our discouragement. Life is not that way. We've talked before about life as a wilderness journey. It has ups, it has downs, it has real trials. There are real implications to the stupid, foolish, sinful things we do. Sometimes lasting implications. But here's the thing. If we find our worthiness in Jesus, if we find our identity rooted and grounded in Jesus, Jesus, if he is where we get our verdict, not our work, not our kids, not our marriages, not our intellect, not our accomplishments, not our performance, but Jesus then disappointments in the various areas of life which are bound to come probably have already come to you. They're simply less devastating because we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you something else that's true. When you live accepting the verdict that Jesus gives you about yourself, it suffuses your life with joy and rejoicing. It makes joy and rejoicing possible in almost any circumstance. But if you are a morally religious person, your whole life is a battle to do better, right? You've got to solve the world's problems. You got to get out there and fix racism. That's on you. You need to fix it. 
You've got to solve the problem of poverty and don't rest until you do. You've got to fix global warming. You've got to fix educational inequalities. Here's the worst part. You have to fix you. So the question always is, you know, why, why aren't you fixing these things? Why aren't you working harder to fix these problems? The problems are real. Fix them. Are you sure you're really doing enough? You need to defend yourself constantly if you're the religious person because your very identity is being questioned, right? You're not doing enough. You're not good enough. And so your verdict about yourself will always be challenged. But if you are in Jesus and you understand that he is your advocate, then when somebody criticizes you, and maybe justly, rightly so, if you understand the gospel that we are talking about, well, you can smile genuinely, not glibly. You can smile when somebody challenges your character or your behavior, and you can say, you're right. And you don't know the half of it. I'm a whole lot worse than you know. You see, religious people are offended if you in any way, shape, or form suggest that they are somehow not righteous or do not understand God or do not seek God the way they should or have turned away from God or the good that they do, they do for selfish reasons or uh, that their speech is full of deceit or that their mouths are full of cursing or that they are swift to, to criticize and to condemn others. And yet that is exactly the way the scriptures describe all of us in Romans chapter three. That's who we are, really. We are all of us understand sin and there's no one righteous, not even one. The true Jesus follower knows this is the truth about them. Honestly. And we are blown away that despite that being the truth, God accepts us and loves us anyway. Because we are in Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest. Wow. <laughs> wow. Who could believe it? That's amazing, friends. Me, a Christian. Me, a child of God, a beloved child. I, I don't understand why God loves me. I just know it's true in Jesus, who is my great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. God has saved me. God has made me his child. God loves me. Here's what it is. It's amazing grace, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. You know what will rob you of joy more than anything else in life? Feelings of religious pride or superiority. Or when you do your calculations, inferiority, if you're not measuring up. And you see, it's the gospel that helps us with both of those things. You see, we are so sinful, there can be no religious pride or superiority. But we are so loved and accepted that there should be no feelings of inferiority. Because we are beloved in Jesus. And therefore, we can rejoice and be joyful. This meal 
very obviously, is all about these things. The sufficiency of Christ, his high priestly work on our behalf, a sacrifice once and for all made on our behalf. That's why this meal is so important to us. That's why we rejoice to be able to come to this table. That's, it, it, it's what it reminds us of, the gospel, the good news. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples took bread and broken and he said, this bread is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. He told them this just before they were all going to abandon him. And they invited them to, to partake nevertheless, knowing what was coming. He invites us to partake as well. The prerequisite, however, is that when we come to this table, we come knowing what we deserve, knowing we are sinners, knowing that it's judgment we should be receiving, but because of the work of Jesus, we receive something better. Forgiveness, eternal life, his righteousness. Uh, Jesus in the upper room took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for remission of sins. And we have uh, been celebrating the fact and are reminded again and again in the book of Hebrews that this is a new and better covenant. One with promises that can't be broken. One with guarantees that can't be taken from us because Jesus is the guarantor. He's the one who executes and cuts the covenant and suffers the penalties for the brokenness of the covenant and then gives us life, his life. Life couldn't keep him in the grave. Remember, we do this until he returns is what Jesus told his disciples to do. So we do this looking forward to his return. So again, parents, it's important that your children know and understand what's symbolized here if they're partaking of this meal. It's critical that you understand what is symbolized in this meal. This is a sacrament that gives us grace and life and nourishment, spiritual nutrition. The right way to come is by faith, believing. Pray with me. Father, we rejoice and we thank you for this meal. It reminds us that we are your beloved, not because of anything we've done and nothing we can do is gonna change that relationship. We come in faith, we come in trust, we come believing, Jesus, that you are the sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins. We come believing that you did not stay dead, you rose from the dead and because of that, we your life. And so we partake of this meal, asking you to feed us, nourish us, strengthen us, equip us to be more like you, to love others the way you love us. Equip us to honor you, God. Thank you for this celebration of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.